Alrighty, you are listening to the That Sounds Made Up podcast. That sounds made up! We really do need to get some lyrics in that theme music, don't we? We do. Which is interesting, because music and lyrics definitely play a part in this episode. (gasps) Goody! I'm your co-host, Matt Keeley. I am your other host, Casey Ellis. So let's get right into it. I've got a couple of terms that I want to define to give you context for this story. Contextualize away, buddy. Premonition. Ooh. Oh, you know this one? Yeah. Uh, It's the feeling that you get when you have... I'll let you explain it. It's a strong feeling that something is about to happen, especially something unpleasant. That is a premonition. Yeah, I I couldn't explain it that well. (laughs) The second one is gold record. Now, okay, does this revolve around music? It does. So how many albums does a band have to sell? How many units of an album Okay, so there's a like record? a grading system, right? Yeah. Up, you can, all the way yeah. up to platinum? Correct. So uh, what? how many units is a gold record? A uh, million. Uh, half that. It's 500,000 units. 500,000, okay. So this is a story that's about premonitions and music. I've got a bad feeling about this. Our story begins. Founded in 1964, the band My Backyard was formed in Jacksonville, Florida. I have not heard of these guys. Oh, you never heard of My Backyard? No. I think it's it's a pretty good name. name. Yeah. You you want to listen to My Backyard? (laughs) So they played clubs and put in their work uh, to hone their sound. And in 1974, the band put out their first studio album. By then, they were known by their more famous name, Leonard Skinnerd. Oh, okay. I have heard of them. <laughs> One of the, the best-sounding classic rock bands of all time. Yeah. I, I know the story of how they got that name. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead and give me your version, then. Uh, so Leonard Skinnerd is a, uh, it's, it's a, it's written with Y's, L-Y-N-R-D-S-K-Y-N-R-D, I believe, um, because they had a really strict teacher. I want to say it's their gym teacher. It was. Uh, uh, that was just a super disciplinarian, and they named it that way to just make fun of him and rag on him. Yeah, the, a little more detail in that story. His name was Leonard Skinner, and he was always picking on the two founders of the band whenever they were in school together for having long hair. Oh, that's So it was like a kind of a screw you tribute. Mm -hmm. So in late 1977, it was time to promote their fifth studio album. That's pretty prolific between 1974 and 1977, having five studio albums. Yeah. That's, that's like more than one a year. And any musicians that are listening know that it takes time to write in a whole friggin' album. Yeah, and I, I can't imagine just being like, all right, so we just got done with that album. We went on tour to promote it. You guys want to take some time off? Fuck that. New album. Yeah. And, like, yeah. They got, they're got they putting out, like, Freebird and other, like, these aren't, like, easy hits. Oh, no, no. This is, like, Sweet Home Alabama and all kinds of great stuff. So, yeah, they're not. discography while you're talking. Go ahead. Yeah, they're not, like, putting out the, you know, that shitty let's just make money album. So, yeah, that level of uh, of quality in that time frame is fucking insane. 
Mm-hmm. So in 77, it's time to promote that fifth studio album. And they were planning their most ambitious headlining tour to date. In order to make all the gigs, the boys needed to fly. Yeah. So. Oh, I got a premonition, Casey. I think you know where that's going. So frontman Ronnie Van Zant's bandmates were anxious as they prepared to board the leased plane in Greenville, South Carolina's downtown airport on the afternoon of October 20th, 1977. Now, they had good reason to be anxious because Leonard Skinner's rickety Convair 240 was pushing 30 years old and was obviously past its prime. Mm. Can you imagine being a band that far on the rise and you're getting a 30-year-old plane? You could probably afford something a little bit, you know, safe. Yeah, I'd be looking at my band manager like, uh, so where's the real plane? You can afford all the best sound equipment for a rising famous new band at this point, And you put them in a schooner. That's like getting a rental car and cramming like, ah, makes me mad. Okay. So, quote, we were flying in a plane that looked like it belonged to the Clampett family. Drummer Artemis Pyle later said, the Clampets being the family from the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, where they pack everybody up and head out to Beverly Hills. The 10-foot flames seen shooting out the right engine two days earlier had done little to inspire anyone's confidence. Jesus. Now, you have you've flown in this plane two days ago, and one of the engines was belting out 10 feet of fire. How, how happy are you to step back on that plane? It's like, well, uh, it worked the first time. I I am looking at rental car companies, anything, but I'm looking at getting sled dogs before I get on that plane. Yeah. But, you know, whenever you are you know coming off of a show, you might not have slept that night, and they're just putting you on the plane. I, who knows? It's like, oh, whatever. I'll, I'll take two Ambien and wake up when we're there. So, a mechanic could not be summoned prior to takeoff, so the plane would have to do without being serviced until they reached Louisiana. Dicks. So, not only did the record company put you on this least 30-year-old plane, they're not even going to get a mechanic out there after it was shooting 10-foot flames. I I gotta say that uh, maybe you guys need a union at that point. It's fine, it's fine. We'll just get on there and play the music. Uh, you know, the, 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 my car shoots 10-foot flames sometimes. Come on. <laughs> It's part of Pyrotechnic Acts now. We're going to incorporate it into the show. Yeah, we're going to bring the plane on on stage. It's going <sighs> to shoot flames out during Freebird. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I'm already feeling uneasy at this point. So on the evening of October 20th, 1977, Leonard Skinner gathered for the last time in Greenville, South Carolina. After the show at the Greenville Memorial Auditorium, they had to catch their flight for the next stop on the tour, Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is where they were scheduled to have the plane get serviced next. Oh, God. It's always when you try and... It's just you you drive the car until it breaks down at the mechanics. Like, ugh. Yeah, so, you know, this this fucking plane's throwing out 10 feet of fire behind it on the last trip. And the record guy's like, we'll get it fixed at the next stop. Stop complaining. And South Carolina to Louisiana is no small flight that's that's several states that's not a puddle jump no 
Oh. And it's not like South Carolina didn't have any other planes, too. Yeah, much more could be done. So, their latest album, which was called Street Survivors, that's another part of the premonition, had gone gold upon its release three days earlier. So, this is how good this band is. Three days ago, their latest album goes gold, and you're putting them in this fucking airplane. If we strap the gold record to the engine, will that help the airplane at all? It'll look good for your pictures. Hey, hey boys, g- gather around the airplane. We're going to take a picture. I'll hold up the gold record. Don't mind the ten feet of fire. <laughs> it's supposed to sound like that. Don't worry. God. You only need one wing, right? Get out and flap. So, yeah, the go- uh, the record three days before this takeoff just went gold. And the first five dates of the accompanying tour had been met with huge, rapturous crowds throughout their native Southland. So the Ambitious Trek, which was their largest tour to date, was going to see the band achieve its dream of playing New York's Madison Square Garden. But fate had other plans. Yeah. Cut down before they could play their big one. So at the time, lead singer Ronnie Van Zant was 29 years old. Can you imagine? Five studio albums, gold records, at 29. I'm... That's... That's how old I'm going to turn uh, next month. Hey, bet you feel like a piece of shit now, don't you? Uh, I do. <laughs> Even more so. <laughs> Quote, Ronnie was the only one of my children who had second sight, his father used to brag. So second sight is being able to have premonitions of the future. Oh, foreshadowing. So many in the band circle believe Van Zant had a premonition of his fate. On numerous occasions, he proclaimed that he would never reach his 30th birthday. Drummer Artemis Pyle recalled, Ronnie and I were in Tokyo, Japan, and Ronnie told me that he'd never lived to see 30, and that he was going to go out with his boots on. In other words, on the road. I mean, that could be just a goal for a rock musician making music at the time, too. Sure. Okay, so let's, let's, let's have a little tally chart. Okay, that's one tally of premonition, okay? Sure. That, you can overlook that. That's just yeah. one, right? Okay. It, there, it reminds me of the Who song, uh, My Generation. I hope I die before I get old. Sure. I mean, that is, that's pretty rock star, you know, live fast, die young, leave a good-looking it's, corpse mentality. It's the aesthetic, yeah. But, okay, I'm, I'm putting it as one check on the premonition board. Sound good? One check. Okay. A feeling of impending doom carried over into his music, particularly the Street Survivor's track, That Smell. Written as a stern warning after bandmate Gary Rossington wrapped his brand new Ford Torino around a tree during a substance-fueled joyride, the foreboding lyric, Smell of Death Surrounds You, provided a glimpse into Van Zant's unsettled psyche. Van Zant says, Death Surrounds You. Yeah, that's pretty foreboding. I always thought it was the smell of death around you, but... Smell of Death Surrounds You. Huh. Yeah, that was on the album that came out three days before this incident. Yikes. Van Zant is quoted saying, I had a creepy feeling that things were going against us, so I thought I'd write a morbid song. Hmm. He said that three months before the flight. It would be one of the last songs he ever wrote. That gives that song a whole new meaning for me. You gotta start thinking the guys maybe got this kind of dance with death mentality. It's like, hey guys, I got another song. It's called uh, We Die in Explosion. Oh, that's a bit on the nose, Ronnie. Uh, hey, Ronnie, what happened to uh, let's get rich and die old? 
Oh, no, no, no. That's not how you want to live, brother. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three, four. So Van Zant hated flying. And the, the ramshackle plane contributed to his feelings of malaise. You uh, think? I would imagine so. Now, a string of rowdy incidents on previous chartered flights had ensured that Leonard Skinner were unwelcome on most private airlines. Oh, yeah. Okay, that answers a bit more about, though, why they had to take a private puddle jumper. Yeah, so apparently these guys have a history of being a little uh, out of control and rowdy during their flights. <laughs> so Please, sir, we're, we're taxiing right now. You have to sit and put your seatbelt on. This is America! Uh, this is your captain speaking. Uh, the fastened seatbelt sign is on, as is the stop-throwing bottles of Jack Daniels sign. Do you think they'd be anti-maskers if they were alive today? Boy, I, I don't asking know. asking that question. I think they would be smart enough to foresee, like, the health risks, if we're going with, like, the the future sight angle. Well, they would be pretty old now, so I would assume that they would want to maintain their health. Yeah. Yeah. So, with the the band's flying reputation, it was up to the band's manager, Peter Rudge, to obtain a vehicle of their own so they could be free to misbehave. So I'm imagining how that call goes out to begin with. Just like, hey, uh, looking for a an airplane. Um, it is for a rock band. Oh, I'd rather not say which one. Yeah, Do- they, they, they got to be by themselves. Um, it's just easier that way. How... How stain-proof is the airplane? Ew. (laughs) Do they fly with groupies, I wonder? Well, they had a large entourage, is all I know. Yeah. So, Peter Rudge had to obtain the vehicle, and he was offered the Convair 240, registration number N55VM, by the L&J Company of Addison, Texas. So this plane was manufactured in 1947. It's 1977. How big a year difference is that? That's 30 years. Ah. So, yeah, this is uh, this plane is older than Ronnie. Do you have to, uh, like, pull on a ripcord to get the engine started? <laughs> I think that uh, the Wright brothers wrote the schematics for it. But here's well, another bit of the premonition. Ronnie Van Zant said he'd die before he turned 30. The plane is 30 years old, exactly. Hmm. So, hmm. I'm going to add another check. Coincidence. So, check it checkaroo on the old uh, premonition board. Checkaroo, check check checkaroo. And you know, I- I'm going to put another one up there for the whole uh the that smell lyrics that came out on the same album. 3 total so far. Okay. So, it was manufactured in 47. It was powered by a pair of counter-rotating propeller engines. So we had jet technology for a while. Most bands were flying on Learjets, you know. Yeah. And, you know, here's like an airplane from the end of Casablanca. So I'm picturing this is the one that has like the two layers of wings with uh, the little uh, connector cables in between. <laughs> it's not a biplane, but <laughs> it's That's pretty... That's the word. It's pretty fucking old for its time period. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, the aircraft was essentially an antique, with 29,000 flight miles under its wings. So there we are again, the number 29. Yep. So I'm going to put another check on the board. Four. 
Now, the band Aerosmith had briefly hired the very same plane earlier that year, but their assistant chief of flight operations, a man, I, I love this guy's name, Zunk Bucker. Zunk Bucker? Z-U-N-K, Zunk. B-U-K-E-R. So it's either Bucker or Buker. Oh, uh, okay. We'll call him Skunk Fucker. <laughs> I think his name is those uh, those Scrabble pieces that you can't make words out of. Uh, yeah, it was Aerosmith Chief of Aviation's uh, planning. It's a, it's a triple word score. It's a Zunk Bucker. So even uh, Zunk Bunker, Bucker, sorry, questioned <laughs> the vehicle's flightworthiness, and he ultimately backed out of the deal after claiming that he caught pilots McCreary and Gray smoking and passing around an open bottle of Jack Daniels in the cockpit. No. Now that's alleged. That's alleged from Zunk Bucker. Zunk but, Bucker is the most trustworthy person in this story so far. All I have to say is. In 1977, Aerosmith weren't exactly Amish. These guys were hard partiers, too. Yeah. And for the people that work for Aerosmith to go, we're not putting Steven Tyler in this piece of shit. But yeah, yeah, Man, Aerosmith what? turned it down. The, the market on these rock band planes seems so small now. So, uh. when first introducing himself to the band Leonard Skinner on the tarmac... This is so eerie. This actually happened. Okay, listen up to this part. Yeah. The plane's co-pilot, William Gray, stated, It's always been my dream to fly rock stars around. After this, I can die a happy man. Oh, five. What a fucking creepy thing to say on a rickety-ass airplane. I don't think that means he died a happy man, then. He didn't finish. (laughs) He's in purgatory, regretting his decisions. Why did I have to, to so specifically word that? The universe listens. But, I mean, that that's so eerie. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's like, um, before we put you under for your uh, knee reconstructive surgery, I just wanted to say it's always been uh, just an honor of mine to, um, you know, take a Slice stab and at dice. Things. So Alex Hodges, friend of the band and business associate, commented, It sort of symbolized to the band that Rudge was doing things on the cheap. And here they were, one of the biggest bands in the world. They were not a happy bunch. And the plane was like a metaphor for them being trapped in a bad situation. I'm not going to lie and say I sensed that the plane was going to go down, but I was very uneasy about them getting on it, I'll tell you that. So he just went along with it? Well, I mean, this is, you know, a friend of the band. Yeah. So he didn't really have a whole lot of pool, I'm assuming, but... Oh, yeah. I'm just extrapolating to, like, if he felt that way, probably the band did, too. I'm wondering how much of this was getting back to the band, though. How honest were they being about this plane's reputation? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if Skeezy McGee is trying to sell him on the cheapest plane, he's going to be buttering it up. Yeah, th- this pl- this plane was so great, Aerosmith said they weren't worthy of it. So, Van Zant needed reinforcement backup singers on the tour. So he called Jojo Billingsley, who was the lead singer of the Honkettes. I love that band name. Honkettes. They're just geese. <laughs> so, she uh, he asked her to join the band on tour. In an interview years later, she said... 
That night, I had the most vivid dream. I saw the plane smack the ground. Number six. Throw it up on the board. So Billingsley was the only band member not on the plane that night. (gasps) No. According to official accounts, Billingsley was ill and planned to join the band a few days later. However, JoJo claimed that she foresaw the crash in a dream two nights before the incident and begged other band members not to board the aircraft. So, to yeah, no avail. This is, like, all of this is just coming to a head. Uh, I mean, I imagine, yeah. like, how hard is it to, like, listen to someone who says they have a premonition, though? Just sort of poo-pooing the idea. Okay, so you see that it's an older plane, but I imagine you have to assume that if you're one of the most popular bands in the world, that the people that are working for you aren't going to put you on a death trap, right? Surely, if you were a professional in that position, you wouldn't be so dumb as to lose your entire asset for your career. So, it gets it gets so much worse, I just have to tell you. Oh, no. Yeah, so, I mean, okay, I imagine... Some backup singer comes to you with a premonition. You might be like, okay, I understand you think you might have some clairvoyance, but I trust the band manager. It's what he does, right? Makes sense. So the band didn't listen to her, but many of the crew felt uneasy riding in the plane, especially considering that they'd seen flames shoot out the right engine on a trip just prior, you know? Uh Uh-huh. In fact, Cassie Gaines originally wanted to ride in the band's equipment truck rather than board the plane, but Ronnie Van Zant talked her out of it. Van Zant reportedly said to her, Come on, let's go. If it's your time to go, it's your time to go. Hmm. But is it, though? <laughs> like, I don't know if he just thought whenever his, his car came up on top of the deck, it was his turn, but it seems like there's a couple of things that you can be like, Hey, I don't want to get on the fucking plane. I mean, there are, it's, if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. Just jump into the shark-infested water while there's blood and uh, desiccated animal carcasses in there. It's fine. I mean, I, I don't want to put any of the onus on Ronnie Van Zandt because he's just a musician, you know. He's just following the suit of the, the people that tell him what's good and what's not right. on these tours. But that's a, that's a fucking weird, ominous thing to say as well. <laughs> sure. So the Would you count that as another one? Oh, yeah, put that on. I mean, say, saying it's your time to go if it's your time to go is pretty ominous. Sure. F- foreboding, at the very least. That's direct quote. So, the plane took off at 5.01 p.m. without incident. The band had decided that after they landed for the gig in Baton Rouge, that they were going to get rid of the plane. Good idea. Yeah, but <laughs> maybe a little late, I'm thinking. Like, I, I understand you trust the band manager, but... At- as soon as there's fire kicking out of the back of the plane, I'm like, upgrade. Draw a line there. Yeah, they're on this fatal flight saying it's going to be, we're done with the plane after this. So now in the air, they started celebrating that this was going to be their last flight aboard the plane. Uh, I'm counting that as eight. Oh, no, no, wait to the end of this part. Okay. So in celebration, a heated game of poker took place in the back of the plane. So they're literally gambling now. Mm-hmm. They've already gambled with their lives on this plane. Now they're legit playing poker. Okay. So there, there you go. Put that one up. That's symbolic. Eight. So a toxicology report showed no alcohol or drugs in the system of the pilots. But the FAA ruled that fuel shortage led to what happened. So... Mm. 
Planes that were that old would often show an inaccurate fuel reading before taking off. So it was it was a common practice to use a manual dipstick to double check the fuel level physically. Yeah. So you know, just it's an old bird, you want to be safe, double check the fuel manually. I imagine the flames shooting out of its engine didn't help the fuel consumption. Yeah. Well, this practice did not occur before the fatal takeoff. Hmm. Hmm. So they ran out of they ran out of gas, Matt. How stupid. It's not like a bird flew into the engine. It's not like the pilot had a stroke or a heart attack. They ran out of gas. That's so, that's completely unnecessary. Imagine you are the FAA director going over this crash analysis, and it's like, well, one of the biggest bands in the world died. I got to give the public a good reason. Hey, uh, Smith, uh, what did the report come back as the cause of the crash? Um, they uh, they were on fumes. Oh, so they were huffing some kind of uh, narcotic, and it led to the pilots going down? Okay, that makes sense. No, 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 no. Um, they didn't put gas in the engine. Jesus or, Christ. Or they, they didn't put a stick in the in the engine to check that there was gas there? Because, you know, these older planes, uh, they, they can be unreliable. I think we're just going to say natural causes. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, goddamn. Imagine having to print that in your report. Ugh. That's that's such a waste. Uh, so well into the flight, the sputtering right engine completely goes out. So the yeah, the engine was already kind of you know, you know, sputtering yeah. along its way, and then eventually just, boo, it's done. Just nothing. So on a on a two engine airplane, you've lost half your engine. Can you still like glide? I wonder. Well, you can still. It's a little rocky, but you can still maintain airspeed with one engine uh-huh. so at 6 42 p.m so you know about an hour and 40 minutes into this flight the head pilot mccreary radioed to the traffic control center quote we need to get to an airport the closest airport you've got sir and there wasn't one nearby i imagine they were given vectors to macomb pike county airport which was 17 miles behind them no. So they got to turn around with one engine. But, you know, with the engine already... Okay, with with the plane that had already been shooting fire two days ago was already sputtering in midair, and they decided to fly over an airport. Like, we got this. <sighs> Get nervous. So they started to bank around to make their way towards Macomb. When guess what happens? The other engine goes out. The left engine gives out. Both engines now silent. The aircraft was gliding under no power, completely dead at the stick at 4,500 feet and dropping. I'm getting a parachute at that point. So keyboard player Billy Powell states, It got real quiet. All we could hear hear was air, wind. Now, you've, you've, you've flown before, right? Yeah. Even if yeah, it's yeah. not a propeller plane, you've been in an aircraft. There's a hum that you hear. Yeah, there is a good deal of mechanical noise, and I kind of find it comforting because it lets me know the airplane is airplaning. Yeah, that's so eerie. So imagine sitting in a chair, flying through the sky, and all you're hearing is... Yeah. So... Oh, boy. Yeah, the band's drummer, 
who had lost his father in a plane crash, by the way. Oh my God! So can we check that one up? Uh, sure, nine. So he's in the cockpit looking over the instruments because he was actually a, a pilot in the Marine Corps. And oh, so he's up there helping now. Yeah, he's looking at the instruments. Whenever they announce that they all had to buckle up and cover their heads. That's not an announcement you want to hear come from the cockpit. At that point, security manager Gene Odom yells to the cockpit, I hope you two sons of bitches live through this so I can kill both of you. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh. I tell you what, if I'm, if I'm going to be in a plane crash, I'm going to be yelling at somebody. Yeah. So, Cause... over rural Mississippi, the plane began its 10-minute descent. That's agonizing. Ten minutes of quiet descent. It went down in a forest near the Louisiana border. Hitting so trees. They were trying to aim for a, a field or a roadway, something clear and smooth, but the, their airspeed velocity just kept dipping down to the point that they're flying over a forest. Uh, that's a lot of strongly rooted objects to hit. So imagine like you're flying, you know, you're in the clouds still, and then as soon as you've come out of the clouds, you're just seeing trees. I, I would be looking for the uh, the in-flight drinks at that point. Yeah. Just I'm um, I'm gonna go chugging some whiskey or something. <laughs> I don't want to be conscious for that. So it goes down near the Louisiana border at initial speed of 90 miles per hour. Ah, that's wrap yourself around a tree velocity. And the trees tore the hull and aircraft apart for 15 seconds before it came to rest. Fuck. All because they run out of gas. Ugh. Ugh. <clears throat> so I hate all after, of that. After the, after the wreck and the recovery, the bass player, Leon Wilkinson's heart, stopped twice while being tended to on the operating table. He said that during that time, he had a vision where he was sitting on what appeared to be a cloud with Ronnie Van Zant, who he didn't know was dead at the time. It was just a vision. And Ronnie says to him, Boy, get yourself out of here. It's not your time yet. Get on out of here. Okay. So. That's, I mean, yeah, that, that, I can imagine that's what your brain is telling you if you have somebody. It's like, live, damn it! Like, I can imagine a operating just trying to zap him with electrical pads i don't know i don't know is... it's not quite a premonition moment but considering he didn't know he was dead at the time i'm throwing it on the board 10 two digits so 20 of the 26 passengers aboard survived oh my god so six passed away among the deceased was lead vocalist and founding member ronnie van zant he was just three months away from his 30th birthday Wow. That he said he would never see. So, here's the ultimate crown of premonition at the end here. The original album cover pressing for Street Survivors, that album that came out three days before the crash that went gold, had to be quickly recalled by MCA Records after the plane crash because the cover art displayed the band standing in a line surrounded by fiery wreckage. Oh... It was later re-released with a picture of the band just standing against a black backdrop. 
Eleven. So you're at your your magical computer box, aren't you, Matt? Uh huh. Do me a favor and Google Street Survivors original cover. Typey, typey, type. Street Survivors album cover. Oh my god. They look like they're in hell. How fucking coincidental is that? Yeah, they're just surrounded by flames. So, I think that tips the premonition board. Yep. That is like slam dunk, pack it up, premonition moment. Yeah. Award a double premonition for that. So, the band continued on after the crash with new members, and eventually Ronnie's little brother, Johnny Van Zant took over vocals. I always thought that would be a weird gig. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're a good singer, but we want you to be the shadow ghost of your brother. How dare you sing where he sung? Nah. I mean, do you think that's a cool tribute, or do you think that's, like, weird? I mean, it's it's shades of both, because if I were in that position, I would do it knowing that my older brother would want this band to continue. That's kind of honoring his legacy in that way. On the flip side, everybody's going to be comparing you to your dead brother. Oh, absolutely. I imagine it's kind of like whenever Jim Belushi got on SNL. Right. Oh, my God. Because nobody ever thinks of him as his own artist. He's always compared inherently to his brother. So in 2004, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Leonard Skinner number 95 on their list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Leonard Skinner was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on March 13, 2006, and to this date, the band has sold 28 million records in the United States. That's platinum numbers. So my sources for this were History 101, Rolling Stone Magazine, Screen Anarchy, and Voluptuous Vinyl. So, do you think these premonitions are just coincidence? Is it a made-up story, or do you think that there really is a force of fate that was showing what was going to happen? I don't know, man. There's a lot of coincidence that went into it. The the whole want to die before I'm old uh, like sets in. Uh, I don't know. Like there's sometimes just you go with your gut feeling on this and I don't know. I, I'm inclined to believe this a little further. Uh, give it an 8 out of 10 for me. I'm going to be generous. Yeah. I mean, you know, all of the people saying they had premonitions, you can take those or leave them. The guy who, you know, the bass player whose heart stopped and said that he basically saw Ronnie in some kind of afterlife, that you have to take him at his word. But what you can't take at someone's word is that fucking album cover. (laughs) I know. That just, that's inviting bad energy. In my yeah. opinion now. Well, I mean, you know, without if there had been no plane crash, you would just look at that album and go, oh, that's kind of a cool fire aesthetic. Right. But in the context of what happened, you go, oh, man. Yeah. It's like, that did not age well. So much of this is just, I don't know if you call it fate, but there's a lot of human error going on here, too. Yeah. Especially these two pilots. The, t- the pilots trying to, like, set them up for the cheapest possible solution... It's, yeah, hubris in many forms. So anyway, I just thought this was a, an interesting story. And like I, I had heard about the, you know, the circumstance of that plane crash. But then yeah. as, as I started to look more into it, I just could not believe how many foreboding coincidences there were. Well, that's a great story. I, I knew that they had band members die in a plane crash, but the, the layeredness of it all is really outstanding. And it makes a lot of sense why... 
a lot of artists have stories of why they're afraid to fly. So anyway, uh, I hope you all enjoyed that story. Just a really interesting, but very ultimately kind of a sad look at rock and roll history. Yeah. So out of love for their music, I'm Casey Ellis. I'm Matt Keeley. And if you like what we're doing with this show, please definitely give us a rating, give us a subscription, and just share it to anyone you think might enjoy it. Can you smell that smell? (laughs) Well, I'm going to go now because I'm as free as a bird, Matt. And this bird, you cannot change. Good night, everybody. Later.